Time for breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is a crowded table of wounded children, parents, spouses, caregivers, and weary souls. Together, we join in honest conversations about the behaviors and challenges of parenting and working with children who have experienced trauma. There's always room for one more at the table to share in the stories, science, and healing as we learn to better understand and care for each other. We are a table without shame or judgment because life can be hard and lonely, and we all know that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I'm Stacy. I'm a mother of seven children and have fostered for over 13 years. As an RN and former public school teacher, I quickly realized this type of parenting was not taught in a textbook or class. Let's learn together to parent different, not harder. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. Welcome back to part two with the Zelaskos. I am really excited again just to have Carrie and Tyler Zelasco, who are parents of a multitude of children and chickens and small farm animals. Yes. <laughs> um, Tyler is a licensed mental health therapist. Carrie works at Grace College as an Carrie, what is it again? You are doing student affairs, right? Yeah, I'm in student affairs. Yep which is awesome. And I, I do know you are very popular on campus as zany <laughs> and fun. And so what I, I hope you joined in for part one. If you did not, you need to go back and listen to it. Carrie and Tyler are very authentic and very real about adoption. And, and I love that. So we're going to start off and I want you guys tell me one class or book you've read that has helped you understand this journey better. I would say to start off with, like, I, I think we got probably better foster care training than most people get. It was a very intense, was it 10 weeks long? I was 10 weeks long, three hours every Wednesday for 10 weeks. It was in the state of Florida. It was in the state of Florida, Seminole County. The The CEO of that, of that organization, because it's privatized down there, community-based care of Seminole County. His goal, the CEO of that organization, was to be the best foster agency in the country. And he would give his personal cell phone number to his foster parents, right? So like, like there are trainers were foster parents, they had, they were adoptive parents, they were in it, one of them was an employee of CBC of Seminole County, like they were great. D didn't touch on, on some of the stuff that we talked about in part one, like the attachment stuff, but, right. but probably they, they probably didn't use that language, but they talked about like, the result of those things looks like this, right? And so, so they they did not sugarcoat it. They did not beat around the bush. They were, they were well-informed about a lot of things. Like that was really good for us. I, I don't know that I've, I've read a particular book that was maybe specific to adoption or foster care that was like good. But I think, I think anything about attachment is going to be great. You know, and there's, there's lots of books out there that are on attachment. I think one of the books that, that helped me realized some things was a book called a failure of nerve it doesn't really have anything to do with kind of what we're talking about so much as it, it was about more about leadership it was written by a book uh, by a rabbi and therapist named edwin friedman who actually passed away before he finished the book they had to use his notes to compile the last chapter but but one of the things that he talked about in that book was about reactivity and how to be a good leader you have to be well differentiated and and i think being differentiated in, in anything in life is going to be good. And, and so like, you know, like there are, you know, there are going to be kids in our homes that like, they are not well differentiated, but, but like you said earlier, I think in part one, Stacey, that, that 
you know, they are going to trigger things in us. And, and to say that reactivity is always unreasonable. When we are reactive, we are acting in an unreasonable manner. And so to learn to become well differentiated, meaning I know where I stop and where other people begin and keeping myself, um, he kind of coined this phrase of being a non-anxious presence. There's a pastor out in Portland uh, that talks a lot about uh, the non-anxious presence. John Mark Comer has some good uh, resources about that, but but to be well differentiated, to be a non-anxious presence. And his, his idea of family therapy was focusing on the one person in the family that he could zero in on as becoming the non-anxious presence in the family. And I think that's probably uh, probably one of the best books that I've read about any topic, about leadership, about counseling, about like, I use it in almost any context. And, and I think any leader, teacher, counselor, pastor, anybody should read this book. But I think that's probably one of the best books I've read that has been helpful for me in terms of trying to keep my reactivity down, right? I, like, I don't always succeed. I have one child that seems to just bring that out of me. And, and so trying to, to remember that, you know, in those moments is, is challenging, but I think it's been helpful for me. You know, it's beautiful you're saying right now, because that's so that's all co-regulation, right? And, and as, as humans, we are always, we, we have those mirror neurons. And so we're always cueing off of people. And when you have a calm, non-anxious feedback loop, then yeah. you tend the calmest brain in the room rules the room. But what you said that I think that is hugely important, and I see this play out in my home, some of my children get that non-anxious presence from Darren because they trigger my trauma responses or reactions. However, some of my children, I'm the non-anxious present. So there's like a split. For sure. And yeah. it is just, I wish I would have known that. And what I think is really important to understand is it isn't about your ability to parent. This is not about you and it's subconscious, right? So it is not about you and it's not a manipulation. It truly is, is that you are going to be able to be that non-reactive calming presence to some people, but there are going to be people in your life that you can't do that with. So I, I appreciate you saying that Tyler, because I see that play out and I feel like you just kind of gave me a really good thought on that because I've never really been able to put my finger on that. When you guys set up your home now, like your, your parenting teens. And it is like, I will tell you that we, <laughs> our kids started out in our home very young. And once we got past the adoption and all of the, the visits and all, which we thought that was the hard part. Let me, I'm just going to throw that out there. Anybody that's been fostering or parenting a long time is laughing at me. I literally thought that was the hard part. Okay. Dealing with bio parents, doing all that stuff was the hard part. And then we hit this sweet spot of the preteens. They're in elementary school and they have friends and they're integrated and I'm able to normalize, quote, them. And then we hit the not so sweet spot and we are literally on a flaming bus down the road because my kids struggle socially. They are a chronological age that their social emotional age is about half of and they are hurting. And it's hard. And we are, we are really, really hitting these teen years where teenage years in and of itself is hard, but you add in that the trauma reactions and the attachment and all that stuff. And like I said, it's, we are the we're on the struggle bus. Can you tell me just how, have you changed how your environmental setup looks like 
what are you maybe doing differently in your home as your kids have aged, or even maybe you've done it all along that you would recommend to those listening? I mean, we've had a couple of pretty hard and scary things happen in our journey that have, um, for safety reasons, caused us to have to make the choice to monitor certain areas of our house with cameras. It took me a long time to be okay with the weirdness of that. I think, again, normalizing, me wanting to normalize is like, you know, quote unquote, normal families don't have all of these cameras in their house. Yeah. So here I am in a, in a space that is, that is like where we go, it's our home. And then there's just this obvious, not normal response to things, you know, just kind of a reminder essentially of, of what we wish would never have happened, but did, you know, so wanting to move forward, but also realizing that we don't have a choice in some of this right now. If I were to give advice to people who have experienced sort of the need, I'm trying, I'm really, I'm trying to respect privacy. And I think everybody that's listening, that's a foster adopted parent will understand the vagueness of these details, but it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not going to be forever and they won't always be, the cameras won't always be the number one thing in your life. And those notifications that you get on your phone or your watch when you're not home won't always basically make your heart stop beating and fear rush through all of the veins of your body. I think that's probably been one of the biggest environmental changes that, mm. that hasn't felt amazing, but also like is just really necessary for just maintaining safety and protection. And it's not for us necessarily, you know, like what I said before with, you know, my, my nose or because I was afraid. And then, the, and, and my decisions were because we're made out of fear. This was different. This was, this decision was made because it's necessary. But to like, it worked out in our house that we are in now to where we have our three girls are sleeping upstairs in bedrooms and then the boys are sleeping in the basement. Right? And then like our bedroom is on the main floor. Like that's a good thing that we didn't necessarily plan for or whatever, but as we were looking for houses, like we, that was something that we, we can, oh, like, I think we can do this and it would probably be a good idea mm -hmm. um, just to have that separation. And uh, I think it's good for them, like in lots of ways, but it's also good for us to know that like, like the boys aren't just up like lingering around the upstairs, right? Like they're just yeah. in the basement and the girls are upstairs and just kind of how it is. So. And I think if I, you know, like if I want to, if I'm ever feeling like, are we making any progress with this? If I'm ever kind of having one of those days where I just like need a win, even if it's a teeny tiny win, it, it usually comes in, in the way of like these restrictions are lessening in some ways, you know, the intensity of this is diminishing and that feels good to see and that. And that's not just because time has passed. That's because progress has been made therapy, all of these things that factor into our progress. It's not just, well, it's been, you know, this many years or this many days and, and all of that. It's, yeah. it's been a legit, you know, benefit of the hard, really hard work 
of raising kids from trauma and, and experiencing things that are scary. Yeah, I would, I would add that our house probably looks very similar in a lot of ways. And, and it wasn't something that I, I thought or a place we would be, but, and I wish I could say that I don't see this and hear about this all the time. I think too, some of what we've also had to do as far as environmental, my kids are, you know, they don't have cell phones. They are, well, smartphones. We've had to restrict so many things to keep them safe because they can't handle it because their brains are wired for those things. And so that's just been really an interesting learning curve for me. And then, and then also navigating that with our schools saying, you know, I really don't want my kindergartner, first grader or third grader bringing home an iPad every day. And yeah. so those are things that I definitely have seen is, is things that I've, I've had to realize. And again, you want to, to nor- you want to be the normal family, but really we're not. And, and who likes normal anyway, right? Like normal's boring. Normal's boring. I want to respect your guys' time, but I would love for both of you to talk to me about connected parenting, because, you know, it seems like the, the um, catch all all the time is, is parenting with connection. Tell me about your thoughts on connected parenting and, and how, how that plays out for you. I think for me, uh, that's probably one of the bigger challenges for me. I am definitely more of an avoidant attachment. Like connected is not like my first, like, oh, let's connect. You know, it's like, how do I get away hundreds of miles from here uh, with a glass of bourbon and a, and a book around a campfire? <laughs> and so I think that's, and you know, they, that's even, you know, people like that are not my children experience me probably that way. And so I think that's probably been the biggest, that was going to be a challenge for me with my own kids, like, like my, like biological kids, if we had, you know, biological kids, but, and that's probably part of why the one who triggers me so much is probably doing that. There's probably, something to do with that. Right. And so I think, you know, so, so I know that like, you know, that's, that's, that's always the challenge for me, I think, you know, just in so many ways. And so I think I'm still, I'm still working that out. I think I'm still trying to figure out mm-hmm. what that needs to look like, you mm-hmm. know, in, in my own therapy. Right. You know, and so I think, I think when I, when I spoke at the conference about to, to the, you know, parent trauma parenting for dads, it was like, like, okay, uh, get some help <laughs> because you're going to need it, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you're going to be triggered. And, and so I think that's, that's where I'm at with it. It is, it's still trying to figure it out even after all this time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think connected parenting sounds really amazing. And I, I just sometimes don't even know where to start on how to break some of the the habits that I have that I know are doing more harm than good. I know there are lots of resources and, but there are times in, in my life and in currently where it's, it's hard. And so when I am not in the middle of the hard, I don't necessarily want to crack open a book when it's quiet and read about more hard things. (laughs) So I'm just trying to figure out what the balance is between, you know, like, learning and growing but also honoring the time the the very small amount of time that I have I would say I feel like my faith plays a pretty big role in the success of this change and specifically with with one of our kids it's been a really rough probably nine or fully rough for like the last, last nine or ten months and I did find myself 
wanting to avoid, wanting to avoid, wanting to avoid. And in the fall, I just started very specifically praying that the Holy Spirit would just move me towards this child instead of a way that, that I knew the only way, the only way I was going to be able to do this was if some other entity outside me. So in, in my world, that is Jesus could move me towards this child. And he did. And there are several times over the last probably four or five months where I feel this little tap on my shoulder saying, maybe you should go pick him up from school and take him to lunch and talk through some of this. Or, you know, like maybe you should offer him this as a, as a, you know, and it, and it didn't feel unfair. It didn't feel like I was compromising. Didn't feel like I was, you know, like responding to him out of fear of like, Oh gosh, if I give him the answer, I know he doesn't want, he's going to be mad at me. He's going to yell and scream. You know, like it was a very true, honest response. And I, I had nothing to do with that idea. I did have everything to do with whether or not I was going to do it, but the idea was not mine. So for me, that's been a pretty positive and I would say a connected move, but I am not a bastion of connected parenting by any stretch. I wish that were different and I think it could be, I just have to find the time and what works for me in my brain and my capacity to handle even harder things to adapt to some of that and to make those changes. Cause I know it would be beneficial to another one of our kids too, who's struggling right now in school and is having behavior issues at school. I think if we were to change some of how we address that behavior at home, I think we would see a pretty immediate difference in, in the way their behavior is at school. I love, I, I love that you guys are both so real about that because I do, you know, I, we talk so much about connection in the foster and adopt world and, and yeah, I think it's, you know, I'm going to channel that inner Karen Purvis from the connected child. And I, I'm laughing because I'm like, I'm not feeling very Karen Purvis right now. I'm really just struggling not to like throttle this child. And mm-hmm. I, I think what you hit on is that it truly is just the small opportunities to show that kid grace and to choose the exact opposite of what they think. Right. And, yeah. and, and to me, I also think that for a, a child who has attachment issues, that actually upsets the apple core a little bit and makes them have to like go, wait, well, that wasn't how I planned this for this to work out. Because again, yeah. they want you to, to confirm to them their lack of worthiness and their lack of lovability and all of those things. And so when you do the opposite of what they think you should do, it kind of is a, is a, is a good parenting method, right? As, as far as that, yeah. but I, I get it. Like learning with connection every time I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just, we're all human. Really, and I, I mean, we're human. So, well, I am so grateful for both of you um, coming on here. And I love to ask all of my guests this. I would love for you to tell me a book you're reading or a book, and it does not have to be around trauma or anything that, I mean, I don't care if it's a comic book, right? But a book you're reading um, right now or in the past that that you would love to, to share with the audience. I just read, I think it's called all the lonely people. And that sounds really depressing, but it's not. It's just about an older man by him living by himself in England, doesn't have a lot of friends, but has been telling his daughter who lives in Australia, all of these stories about these friends he has that aren't real. 
because he doesn't want her to leave her life and come stay with him and like, and disrupt all of what she's working hard for and, and everything. And then he realizes his plan is not going to work because she's going to come visit him. And so then he has to figure out how to make friends and how to be community to other people. And it just was like, truly it's called it. Yeah. All the lonely people by Mike Gale, G A Y L E. It was beautiful. It was, it was funny and it was touching and just probably one of my favorites so far this year. Tyler, are you going to add to the failure of the nerve or failure of nerve? I'll actually, I'll, I'll do um, uh, the ruthless elimination of hurry by John Mark Comer. My husband keeps asking me to speed read that. And I just don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> Not even for a speed read. <laughs> I need the cliff notes. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard really great things about that book. I, I, um, you can psychoanalyze this, but I really love um, true crime and I, I, I listen to true crime podcasts as well. And so I de-stress by actually reading or listening to people killing people and hiding their bodies. <laughs> I don't know if that's something you, you could psychoanalyze for me later, Tyler, but I'm going to go ahead and sign up for an I'm appointment. I'm on board with that. I'm on board with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, any questions that you want to ask? No, I know you're short on time. I did look up um, what percentage of adopted children have problems. Now, this is back in 2016. But knowing you guys have five adopted children, it's really interesting to me that they say approximately 50 to 75% of children adopted from foster care will be diagnosed with some type of learning disability, ADHD, or uh, mental health condition. That seems like a high number to me. What do you feel about that comment? 50 to 75%? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's probably true. Now, whether or not all 50 to 75% actually have those things is another thing. I think one of the things that I see a lot and I have dealt with a lot is like, telling people they don't have conditions like that. <laughs> like, I think, I think what happens is you have normal, you have kids who are dealing with trauma, dealing with horrible things, and then they have behaviors that go along with those horrible things, like in reaction to them. And those things automatically get labeled like conduct disorder or ADHD or bipolar disorder. And I think it's that the number of kids that actually have those disorders is very low, but, but, I think they, they get overdiagnosed over like way overdiagnosed, way over medicated. It's something that I get fired up about because I think it's like, we've experienced that. Like, yeah. like had a conduct disorder mm-hmm. diagnosis, it's like, nope, that's not even accurate. Oh, like yeah, it's, it's, it's people who just don't have any idea what they're talking about. People who have no idea about trauma or how that works. And I also don't agree with the medical model of mental health. I'm, 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 it's to me, it says, well, you have this disorder and here's your medicine, take it for life. And it's like, are you going to saddle these kids with a diagnosis that isn't even accurate in the beginning? Like it just, it makes me crazy. Um, but <laughs> that could be I, a part three. I could go on. <laughs> like I would, I would add on top of that as well, Taylor, like what I'm seeing and working in, with our inmate population is we saddle them with the diagnosis as children. That's a normal trauma response. So we're confirming you're bad. There's something wrong with you. Then we medicate them, which then sets them up for an addiction later in life, right? I, I truly believe that because what you're doing is you are medicating internal pain with a substance. And mm-hmm. so what I hear from inmates is like, I've been, they were medicated starting at the age of six, right? And so then they move through childhood to adulthood where then they're going to medicate with bigger, harder, scarier drugs. And so yeah. I- I agree with you 
that many of them with the diag the labels and diagnoses, I mean, at the core of what we do know is at the core of these psychiatric disorders is the inability to calm yourself down, right? Dr. Alan Shore talks about that. And really, if the inability to calm ourselves down is given to us through attachment, like you can just go down that rabbit hole, but I'm, I'm right there with you. So good yep. question. Thank you guys so much for joining us today on Trauma for Breakfast. Tyler and Carrie, you've been a joy to have on here. And thank you for talking about the guts of adoption. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for yeah, having us. Thanks for having us. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. We are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse, and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.